This week, we're exploring the activities under the Naval Oceanography Operations Command. Among its most crucial missions, ensuring superiority of the 5th and 7th fleets in the submarine domain of the Pacific. For details, we turn to the Naval Oceanography Anti-Submarine Warfare Center's Commander Christopher Tuggle from Yokosuka, Japan. Commander Tuggle, good to have you on. Yes, sir. Thank you, Tom, for inviting me to speak to you guys today. It's an honor and a privilege. Tell us exactly what the center does with respect to submarine warfare and how you interact with the fleet and with the Navy writ large. Okay, so we have technically three different missions. First and foremost, we provide asymmetric warfighting advantage for ASW forces and the 7th, 5th, and 3rd fleets through the exploitation of oceanographic environmental data to optimize ASW forces, sensors, and platforms. So that's first and foremost what we do. Well, let's put that in English for a minute. So you want... So asymmetric means we're better at it than the enemy, potentially. Exactly. It's exploiting the environment to give us that advantage that favors us more than our adversaries do. And if the adversary and the U.S. forces are operating in the same environment, what is it that can give one side an advantage in that case? It's a clear and complete understanding of the environment, knowing where to put your sensors, knowing where to put your forces in relation to weather, whether you want to be on one side of a significant weather feature that can hide your forces and ability to see them further, or vice versa. It's about positioning and optimizing the use of our naval assets. Got it. And so I guess the implicit thing here is that weather can affect what goes on under the sea just as much as it can on the surface? Yes, sir. The ocean environment is uh, very complex, especially out here in the Seven Fleet area of operations. You have a lot of complex underwater bathymetry or topography, a lot of ocean vents, a lot of circulations where submarine forces can leverage and exploit and hide in those where some of our sensors can't see unless, of course, you know where to look and you know where to put the sensor. And that's where we come in. We help optimize the search patterns and the utilization of our Navy sensors to best find, locate, and track our adversaries. And these sensors take what form? So we have towed arrays. Those are towed on different surface platforms, whether they're cruisers or destroyers or surtash ships, essentially ships that look passively for long ranges, looking for acoustic signatures. And then, of course, our submarine force as well utilize different passive and active acoustic means of detection. Could they also be buoys and that kind of thing, things that might be anchored, or is it pretty much mobile? A lot of them are mobile. Now, our aviation forces, our P-8s, used to be our P-3s, they can drop buoys, both passive and active buoys, that can listen specifically for acoustic tones that were of interest. And then, of course, some of our helicopters that we may have embarked on our cruisers or destroyers or aircraft carriers can run a dipping sonar tail when we have a clear indication that there is a subsurface adversary in this particular area and help localize it. Pretty amazing stuff. So then the output then of your command is data, basically? Oh, well, more than data. We obviously provide data, but we utilize that data. We turn it into information. We turn it into decisions. We turn it into recommendations. So we do the analysis and also the predictions that also tell the commanders where they should put their sensors. Our job is to try and get ahead of the enemy's decision calculus. Where do they want to hide? Where should they hide? And how do we put our sensors there so when they go there, we're already waiting for them? And what about the enemy's or the potential adversary's sensors? I mean, a lot of this technology is open nowadays. And so how do you make sure that even if they had the same sensors, although I'm sure they don't have P8s, 
and the number of destroyers and other ships that can drag the towed sensors that you mentioned. But still, this is becoming a more open and lower cost to entry type of activity. Yes, sir. So once again, it's understanding the environment and being able to leverage those same underwater features, those same acoustic disruptors to hide our assets as well, to set up ambush points, to put them in the right place to hide and be able to pop out and gain contact or be where we want them to be. We're speaking with Commander Christopher Tuggle. He's commander of the Naval Anti-Submarine Warfare Center in Yokosuka, Japan. And just if you would maybe give us a little bit of background on submarine operations. When the United States is not conducting a exercise, say by itself or with other nations, yet the submarines are deployed, what are they doing essentially and how does this play into that mission? Because, you know, we're not at war in submarines or with any other weapons at the moment, but what are they doing when they're not exercising and rehearsing? Unfortunately, a lot of that information is classified. That's what I figured you'd say. <laughs> but, I, but I can tell you, you know, they, they are continuing to ensure the international rules-based order by ensuring that international waterways remain open and free. They also go out, and this is, you know, part of common knowledge, they're part of our nuclear triad, right? They are part out there conducting missions to ensure that should we need that capability, they remain undetected, they remain free to conduct the nation's missions. All right. And let's talk about the command itself. What kinds of numbers of people do you have? You're in Japan. How many uniforms? What about civilian help and contractor support? Yes, sir. So inside building 3304, what they call Weather Hill, we actually are up on top of a hill one of the most beautiful spots on uh, Fleet Activities Yokosuka. We have about 40 personnel, three civilians that compromise my IT department, what we call N6. We also have a couple contractors that also work inside of the N6, the IT department. Also located in there are a couple IT enlisted sailors and electronics technicians. Their job is to keep our computers and our networks up and running. And for the electronics technicians, we have weather sensors that we have on our installation and located on installations throughout the region that help us gain a better picture of what the weather conditions are like. Also, we have about 30 other sailors that are part of my operations department that conduct our mission, not only our ASW mission, but our resource protection mission as well, which is to keep Navy Region Japan installations safe from natural disasters, hazardous weather by reporting and forecasting and informing those commanders. We also have three detachments that are not actually located in Yokosuka as well. We have a detachment in Misawa, Japan. We have a detachment in Kadena, Japan, there on Okinawa. And then we also have another detachment in Whidbey Island, Washington. All three of those detachments support our Maritime Patrol and Reconnaissance Forces, our aviation forces, the P-8s and the P-3s, that support Navy intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance missions and also anti-submarine warfare missions here in the 7th Fleet Theater. And in talking with some of the other commanders of other units under naval oceanography operations, I get the sense that you're all highly matrixed because a lot of people have sensors and are gathering weather and surface and, in your case, subsurface data. And so there must be some integrative function at the overall command level that brings us all together so that everyone's data can be inculcated into a full picture that is then distributed throughout all the different subcommands. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Makes perfect sense. You actually captured it very nicely. All of that data flows through Fleet Numerical Meteorology and Oceanography Command, FINMOC, as some may know it. 
And of course, it's also displayed and distributed through our Maritime Operations Center there at CINMOC, the CTG 80.7 MOC. So all of the data that's compiled, distributed, turned into either tactical decision aids or even numerical weather prediction or ocean prediction models is then viewable either through FINMOC directly or globally, Navy-wide or METOC-wide, through the CIMOC. So yes, sir, it is complex, but we do have a great clearinghouse that brings us all together and helps turn that data into decisions. And just briefly tell us about yourself, how you came to this particular perch on a hill in the Navy. <laughs> oh, wow, it's quite the journey. Starting out, I actually never wanted to be in the Navy, honest with you. I was a sophomore in college, and the Navy gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. It's called the baccalaureate degree completion plan. I give them two years of college. I go to officer candidate school. And I give them four years. I was like, okay, four years of experience. Not so bad. I want to be a meteorologist. And so I get four years and I get to serve my country. Well, 20 years later, <laughs> here we are talking <laughs> on the federal drive. Prior to this job, though, I was the seventh fleet oceanographer. So I had the pleasure of serving the three-star staff and all the forces in seventh fleet advising the commander and all the other commanders on the exploitation and planning from the strategic and operational level on on how to exploit the battle space or the environment. I get the sense that oceanography and meteorology are chiaroscuro of the same yin-yang of almost the same field of study. Yes, sir. The physics are very similar. You look at fluid dynamics, fluid mechanics, it's just a different medium, water versus the atmosphere. The atmosphere is a lot more dynamic in a general sense than the ocean. Things typically move slower in the ocean than they do in the atmosphere. But once you understand the basic science, you can apply it in the same way. So I grew up with a love of meteorology, loving, fascinated by tornadoes and tropical cyclones. And as I became a naval METOC officer, I grew to love the ocean as well through its study and application. So you must really have good conversations with the Typhoon Command people. Yes, sir. The commanding officer of Joint Typhoon Warning Center was a close friend of mine, and we definitely have lots of communications as one of our missions is providing tropical cyclone condition and readiness recommendations to Fleet Activity Chikoska, Fleet Activity Sasebo. Joint Typhoon Warning Center provides the predictions of the storms, and then what we do is we take the storm motion and the intensity, and we translate it into what that's going to mean at the local fleet installations. Do they need to shelter in place? Do they need to cancel operations? Do they need to make certain preparations to keep the ships and the people that live on the base safe? And just a final question, when there's really churning weather that is churning the ocean, do submarines surface or do they dive and stay deep under it? <laughs> well, the answer depends, right? Depends on where they are, how shallow the water is. But most of the time, they're just going to dive deep. They're going to go below it and enjoy life without the turbulent stuff going up on top. Commander Christopher Tuggle is commander of the Naval Anti-Submarine Warfare Center, Yokosuka, Japan. Thanks so much for joining me. Of course. It's been my pleasure, sir. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tomorrow, we move east when we hear Commander Angela Francis, the commanding officer of the Joint Typhoon Warning Center in Pearl Harbor. Be sure to subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital 
Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company 
Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 of Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.